Cool. So uh, shall we dive in? Yeah. All right. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer, recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. Today, we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Mr. Sean Hare. Now, Sean is going into the world of business and entrepreneurship. He's working in mortgage. He's also a leadership development expert. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about his viewpoints in and around the world of leadership. So Sean, welcome on, brother. Hey, I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, man, it is. We, we always get into these great conversations at the coffee shop, and, the, and I wish we had a microphone. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to uh, haul one around with us. I know, for sure, man. I do that, actually. I should whip it out, but uh, I guess it really wouldn't work in that environment. Yeah. I used to carry a tripod in my bag all the time just Did in case. Really? Yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. So uh, leadership, man. Um, you've been, you know, pretty prevalent online and posting lots of content in and around leadership and some of your thoughts in and around what it looks like, you know, how to best create it, um, you know, what makes it look good to the people you want to lead and that sort of thing. So maybe you could just jump down that rabbit hole and give us a little bit of an overview of, you know, how do you see leadership in the world working in general in an organization or in a family or, or any particular group of, of individuals? Yeah, man. Um, let me just first talk about business because that's where usually people engage with the content or the conversation is how leadership is expressed in business. And for me, the way I approach it is probably less about the day-to-day tactics or execution of it, even though that's important. And I do have a lot of conversation with clients about that kind of approach to business. But my passion really is about the character behind it. So um, learning how to project trust and how to, in fact, be trustworthy um, and uh, honesty and transparency and things that like look good on a poster, but sometimes are just actually missed in day-to-day leadership. A lot of times what I've seen in business is someone that's a technical expert. They're good at a thing, whether it's accounting or a, they're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, at managing a process. They get promoted up the chain because of their technical expertise, which makes sense. You know, you've, whatever, if you're making widgets, the best widget maker gets promoted, right? But often what happens is that person doesn't have, you know, high EQ or soft skills. And then you've got someone leading that's really good at a thing. They've been trained by the process to respect those that are also good at making a thing. Uh, And leadership as a skill is left behind. And what we're finding, and not like this year, but literally over the last 10 years, 15 years, is that leadership as a skill alone is really valuable in a position uh, because it has a bottom line impact on the morale and culture of a team, on the clarity of communication. And then over the long run, those are the kind of things that do impact team legacies and company legacies. Google did research on what makes the most effective team. And of course, they've got all these you know, bigger sample size, right? I've never worked with 10,000 people or 2 million people, much, le- much less like what Google has access to. And when they did all their research, it's really interesting. The number one factor that made a successful team uh, was psychological safety. Uh, what makes a good manager over a successful team? Psychological safety. That's you would never like learn that uh, in a manual, right? Um, and so that's my approach. It's trying to help people that are in leadership positions or aspire to be in leadership positions think through those kinds of things. It's a lot more of that. So, what does uh, psychological safety look like? That's a pretty big word. Maybe you can unpack it a little bit. Yeah, the short answer would be that there's room to express ideas and fail at ideas without it 
getting you essentially kicked off the team. This or happened being at Google? <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. Well, that's based on their research. I'm sure there's teams where that's not happening. But I think the idea is like creating a culture where we can ha- try an idea, it can fail, you can express an idea, and you can talk about it, and maybe even at the end of the conversation it goes like, hey, that's not the best idea that we heard today. Maybe yeah. we'll run with it later, but without there being shame around it. What happens is when there's shame about an idea that doesn't eventually get accepted, um, or there's a punishment for every failed idea, then the team's creativity contracts. Sure. Initiative contracts. Yeah. You would think that there would be in the, especially in the world of entrepreneurship where you have in the the tech world too, where you have so many different ideas flying left and right all the time that you'd almost be rewarded for failure because you want to fail as fast as you can to get to what works. Sure. You would, you would think that AB testing would carry out in the boardroom. You would think and it, it doesn't really, <laughs> uh, it, and usually that's an ego problem, right? You put a you put a person behind a computer and you can convince them of the benefits of an A/B test. Sure. You put them at the head spot of a table, then an A/B test in that room feels like an assault on their on their position, mm. and it and it they don't see the value in respecting other ideas. Yeah, so that's definitely an ego issue, and that would obviously take you down a thousand different rabbit holes and and how that person arrived at that leadership spot. (laughs) But I think it also points to maybe the distinction that you might be getting to at some point, but there's leadership in name only, right? And then there's actual leadership, like natural leadership where people want to follow you or be around you or, or at least are willing to consume your ideas, whether they like you or not. There's Mm -hmm. something, there's something about you as an individual that is, you know, magnetic or attractive to another individual in some way, shape or form. And I feel like a lot of times in the corporate world, it is not necessarily that uh, being leadership, but it's my title. You know, I'm going to rely on my title. And I was always taught that if you had to borrow from your title, you got nothing. Yeah. If you've got to say to the person, do you know who I am? Then they don't, you know, (laughs) it doesn't matter who you are. I think you're right. Yeah. You don't, the, our title is, Interestingly, like what we aspire to in our, I would say, our more insecure moments, uh, we want the, the title of, you know, whatever, you fill in the blank what you want. Some people, it's a C-suite job or a board job or a director, whatever it is. Um, but you're, uh, you put that well. If we're having to borrow from that to get credibility in the conversation, then we may, we may be misplaced in the title. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I know that in my experience in my younger years when I was, you know, quote unquote, climbing that ladder or wanting to climb that ladder. Mm-hmm. I had, a, I experienced a lot of that personally. And I saw people who were above me in the quote unquote organization or the org chart who were probably less capable than I was, but they were there because, you know, they knew someone or they've been doing it for 20. My favorite was I've been doing this for 20 years. <laughs> I'm like, it took you 20 years to figure this out. I like how your hypothetical <laughs> leader had the Southern accent. Yeah. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Yeah. That's my default. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> We're not drinking bourbon, but we probably should be. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, that was, that was my experience a lot. And when, when I would get that, I was a total smart ass about it. And I really started saying that I'm like, it took you 20 years to figure this out. You've been doing the same job for 20 years, you know? Like I've been here for three and a half weeks and while I may not have seen every situation, I've got about 85% of them down, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. And it's interesting. I hear you say that. So there's a, there's a certain um, resoluteness that leaders often need that then transforms over time into stubbornness. Um, For some leaders, it's ego. For some leaders, I think it's fear of the unknown. 
if I'm if I'm forced to admit there could be a new idea that's scary, if I'm forced to think about a better way to change, you know, new technology, new processes, that's scary. And if they can through um, machismo or ego tell everyone we're doing it this way, I trust me, it's the best way. Uh, then they can eliminate that fear. Machismo, that's such a great word. Machismo, <laughs> I just want to say it. It's I'll let you say it. Sounds like, it sounds like a great Hispanic movie, Machismo. That's <laughs> <laughs> the next one, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I hear what you're saying, and uh, you know, I think it would be interesting to get your take on maybe some of the traits that you feel like um, you know, quality leadership possesses, mm-hmm. you know, I've, or, the, or what that character consists of, if that, maybe that's a better way of, yeah. of thinking about it. Let me tell you a story real quick. Sure. And then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Tell How me about, that story. So I was sitting in the pool with a friend of mine the other day because it's, you know, it's 115 degrees outside. And so finding a pool uh, spot is important for conversation. So we're outside and he said that, there was a new uh, boss put in above him. And uh, this is a corporate situation? corporate job. Yeah. This huge employee, like huge company. It's Amazon. It, I mean, it's not like you're going to know who these people are. It was an, it's an Amazon. Uh, this guy's a, you know, a, a higher up manager. And then the position above him um, was replaced. Okay. And he was saying to me that she was a really good leader. They really liked her even though they all knew, they being the team, that she didn't know as much about the day-to-day technical things about what they do. Yes. And I said, hey, I'm really interested in that. Like, immediately my ears perk up. And I said, it sounds like you really respect this leader. Like, you really like her and you're, you gl- you're glad that she's your boss. It doesn't sound at all that you resent the fact that this person that's managing you doesn't know as much as you. Because that's t- the typical reaction. You feel it like, I know more than you. Like, why do you have that job? Why do you have that title? I said, what is it about this person? How do they carry themselves in meetings? How do they communicate? Why you are glad that they are your boss. Uh, And you can feel that way while also knowing you have more technical expertise at your day-to-day tasks. And so it was like kind of perfectly framed this idea of like, clearly this is going to be a leadership answer, right? And I, want, I was really interested in how he was going to answer the question. And he said a few things. One, he said uh, that she was very transparent about what she knew and didn't know. And I thought that was a really good pointer. Like a lot of new leaders, and when I say new, I mean new to the position, not new at being a leader, but new to whatever title, might overplay their cards about what they know. And he said she didn't at all. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. So I'm going to have to learn this from you. And here's what I bring and was very transparent with the team about that. I thought that was really interesting. Two, he said she asked a lot of questions, a lot of questions, and then asked questions that helped them be better. So, in other words, when she gets an answer, she'll ask questions like, is there any way to improve that process, or what are, what are things that might stand between you know, 85% and a little higher, or 72% and getting above that mark? And he said she knows enough about big picture stuff to where she knows how to answer those questions as well. So she would, cha- she challenges and brings them up to a level and helps them think about things they haven't thought about before in a way that seems humble and unassuming. And then the third thing he said he noticed is that he was able to be in the meetings with her and the, his team in meetings with her and her team up above him and that she was an advocate for the team. It wasn't like a, uh, yeah, okay, well, I'll let them know this. It was more, that's, that could be difficult for them or 
I want to make sure you understand what their situation is. So he said immediately she became an advocate for us to her reports. And, and I find that those are really, like, there's probably more, but his answer was, I mean, those are three really good points, right? Be an advocate for your team, ask really good questions from a posture of humility, and be really transparent about what you know and don't know. And those can be scary if you come to your title with ego. Yeah. But I thought that was a really good, you know, basic course in how to be a leader over people that might know more than you know. 100%. So that leads me, like three questions came to mind immediately around that. And so maybe the first one is, in that moment, when you're describing those three characteristics, you know, I think loyalty came to mind, for example, you know, being an advocate for yeah. your team, uh, listening, getting someone's opinion. What do you think the psychological impact is on the people that she now manages, right? So we know what we're seeing in her, but why is your friend glowing? Like, what's he feeling because of the way she's acting in those moments? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I would say the op- whatever the opposite of fear is. And I mean, you can culturally, we would say that's freedom, right? Um, feels free to explore options, to excel, free to fail. Fear is the feeling that you have when you think when someone walks out of the room, they're telling a different side of the story than they tell to you. When they say to you, hey, good job, mediocre job, or whatever, and then they go to a board and they go, like, these people don't know what they're doing. Sure, I'll press down these new directives and systems, even though they're already, their morale is low and they're overworked, and you don't relay what that team is saying to you when you go back to the board. I think, it's a, I think the team that thrives under that kind of leadership, they're feeling the opposite of fear. Mm-hmm. They're feeling the opposite of defeatism. And they're, so it's high morale you know, feeling the freedom to be more creative and trust, which is connected certainly to the psychological safety. There, sure. She's planting seeds of trust, to, and she's going to reap the harvest. She already is. You know, you got a high-level manager saying, I love this leader, and I know she doesn't know as much as I know, and I love her already. That's yeah. pretty fantastic. For sure, and I think that one of the things that stuck out in my head when you were listing off some of the things that she was doing was you know listening asking questions and listening you know uh, getting someone else's opinion uh, being transparent about what you know and what you don't know that puts her in a vulnerable spot you Mm -hmm. know and a lot of people forget that vulnerability is strength it's a strong position not a weak position and uh, I immediately went to that place where it's like okay well how do you strike up a conversation with someone you don't know well you just ask them their opinion you know everyone has an opinion Mm -hmm. and everybody wants their opinion to be valued valued I could speak yeah. right everybody wants their opinion to be valued and so I think psychologically if my boss was asking me my opinion on a thing and was genuinely conveying that they cared and listened that immediately my self-esteem in that moment would would go through the roof like this person values me this person cares you know exactly uh, you know, not, o- not only about her position, but mine. Mm-hmm. And she wants, you know, she wants to learn or he wants to learn exactly what's going on behind the scenes that, that maybe they don't have access to. Right. And I have that status now. Yeah. Right? So it's almost like a status game in that For moment. Sure. You know, a lot of people want to feel that. I mean, you're, what you're describing the political dynamic, you know, within a corporation or a team really well, people want to aspire to either be the top or at least be heard by the top. Sure. And, you can a good leader will project that a listening attitude a humble attitude and a bad leader will project get the stuff done yeah i had an experience i'll share a story with you back yeah. in the day uh, my family owned a chain of uh, rent home stores 
And at the biggest point, we had a couple hundred stores. My uncle was the primary owner from coast to coast. And we hired this one guy. I'll never forget him. His name was Joe Huck, Joseph Huck. And this guy was a fireball, man. Like, he would come in to a really crappy store. It was mismanaged, um, you know, low numbers or what have you. And he would just set the world on fire. Numbers would go through the roof. You know, he'd sling agreements left and right. You know, revenue would increase. Collections would increase. Things are great. But he had a, a strong disdain for corporate office, right? And the reason that he had a strong disdain for corporate was because when we're in the field, like literally working, you know, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., you know, working these crazy hours trying to get things done, and the corporate office is, you know, coming in at 8, taking their two-hour lunch and leaving home, leaving for home at, you know, 4.30, 4.45, you know. They're, mm-hmm. they're locking the door at 5 p.m. and getting paid off of the labor of the people in the field, right? Because the corporate office exists as an expense. Yeah. It, that's the reality. So all you corporate people out there, you exist as an expense, <laughs> right? And you're paid for by operations. Operations pays your salary. They pay everything, right? Nothing happens until somebody sells something, kind of an idea. And I remember he would get in fights with them over what we needed in the field. And he was a, just a tremendous, tremendous fighter for what we needed in the field. And his justification was always that, you know, listen, you exist as an expense and we're trying to make sure that not only you get paid, but we get what we need. Mm. If you give us what we need, guess what? You could probably, you know, do a little bit better at the corporate office as well. And he got away with a lot, you know, using that uh, sort of argument. But that was the reason he was so well-liked is because he was such an advocate for everybody in the field who were just breaking their asses left and right, you know, trying to get things done and wanted to be recognized and didn't really feel like they were heard. Um, You know, it was sort of a top-down situation, you know, hey, do this, do that. We don't care what you think kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. And uh, it reminded me uh, when you started talking about being an advocate, that was the first image that came to mind. So... That's one of those things that I was emotionally tied to because it came up first, obviously, in my mind. And I can totally see now how important that is. That's a great story. You know, it, I really am. What a cool conversation it would be to sit with him and, like, listen to, like, his opinion about how to, how to make changes. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of change management is fascinating to me. People that can come in and literally change not only the bottom line but the culture of a, of a team. That's, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and, and he was the type of guy, you know, he, he just, he's, you know, he was just like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And he was so confident in his skill set, like he didn't care if, if he got fired or if he got reprimanded because there's another company that wanted him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was freedom in that, you know. So there's something to be said for having a skill set that is obviously marketable and desirable, but there's something else from the leadership side uh, to be said for really going to bat for your people. And, you know, he was not afraid to have those confrontational uh, conversations. And he did it when a lot of people, um, he was a divisional vice president. He did it when a lot of DVPs wouldn't Mm -hmm. because they were worried about their job. Yeah. And I feel like he put himself on the line uh, being very outward focused, you know. Yeah. And certainly there's a selfish aspect to that, you know. And, And certainly he, I'm sure, enjoyed the attention that he got from doing it. But... The, the fact that he went to bat for so many people who felt like they were just not listened to or heard, man. I mean, there wasn't a single soul in the field that, that you know, would talk bad about the guy. I was going to say, when you said that the other DVPs were worried for their job, right? Yeah. Um, when someone lives in fear, right, they, they can't do anything but press that down. They're being managed poorly, right, if they're operating out of fear. 
But all they have to press down is more fear. And so it takes a pretty special leader to break that chain, to stand before, I mean, you can use dramatic language like organizational tyrant, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it I'm takes- I'm stealing a, that, I love that. <laughs> it takes a dramatic kind of leader to stand before that kind of person and say, I'm not pushing that down. You can fire me, mm-hmm. but the culture changes with me. Yes. And it sounds like he was that kind of guy, and that's special. And the team, I guarantee you, knows it. They know totally. what he's dealing with. They know what's on his shoulders when he walks in the meetings with his bosses, and they appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was no way of hiding it because in those little offices, you know, you hear everything, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, there was really very little privacy, and you could you could just hear him going at it, you know? You, and so it was it was one of those things where there was the transparency piece, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it was unintentional because of the small quarters we worked in, you know, everything was kind of out there. Yeah. But by the same token, it was still there, which was one of the traits that you mentioned in this person as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that, uh, that picture of being an advocate, being a warrior, being a fighter for your team, rather than, you know, someone that just hops in line. There's Mm -hmm. a certain cowardice that I've grown to have a greater and greater distaste for in middle management that, will sacrifice the morale of their team in order to get the approval of the numbers on their spreadsheet yes. to their bosses. It's just, there's a distaste I have for that. Yes. I get that well, you have to make a profit, um, but at the end of the day, nobody lays in their bed bragging about their profit. They'll lay on their bed and and be happy about the men and women that they built up and whose lives they changed. 100%. And I just, I, I want young men and women to aspire to be courageous uh, not for purely monetary gain, but for the gain of seeing people developed around them and change positively. And that looks like in this context, that's pretty broad what I just said. In this context, being able to look another leader in the face and someone with a title, I won't even say leader, someone with a title and say, hey, that's a really bad idea. We've got to come up with something else. I'm not going to press that down on the team. Yeah. Being able to like exist in a culture like that. Yeah, I mean, that that level of freedom, it actually evokes the imagery of emancipation. So mm-hmm. when I first got into the entrepreneurial world and I had to start hunting and fishing for my own paychecks, you know, they didn't, nobody paid me just for waking up and showing up that day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the rent wasn't going to get paid if I didn't sell a website or, you know, whatever project I was working on at the mm-hmm. time, right? And the information from some of my mentors at the time basically boiled down to, listen, if you want to have an impact you know, beyond yourself, you have to emancipate yourself first. And what that meant in the entrepreneurial sense was, listen, you need to be untied to a financial situation because that is the bread and butter of today, right? So we, we trade dollars for the things that we need to survive. Mm-hmm. We're not in the, in the woods hunting and fishing. We're trading dollars for those things from people who do, right? Or who raise our food, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And so the first goal of any, you know, sort of self-actualized leader was to emancipate yourself first. And once I understood that I needed to have money in the bank, I needed to, you know, um, have some capital set aside in the case of, then everything opened up because then I wasn't afraid of a time period of going without a check or Mm. a time period of going without a project in the case of, you know, I was doing consulting work one-on-one with clients or what have you. And it gave me the freedom to be discerning. So I would say, you know, well, I understand what you want to do, but I'm not the guy or you're, the energy is just not matching up here. So, you know, this isn't a good fit. I don't yeah. want to, I don't want to take on this, this sort of thing, you know? Yeah. 
or, um, you know, in the corporate world, it would be the same thing. Like when I was telling you about the story about Joe, you know, he wasn't worried about getting another job because he knew he could get another job. And so even though he might not have had any money, there was still confidence and freedom in the fact that he knew that he could go get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And from that place, you can be a little more brash and a little more bold and, and that sort of thing. But I feel like today, so many, especially middle management people are just, you know, they're bound, you know, to that golden parachute and they've got the wife and the kids and they're leveraged up to the hilt. They've got yeah. the, the two fancy cars and the, the dog and the two and a half kids and whatever the thing is. Yeah. And you maybe know, the, still paying for student loans. Yeah. And the <laughs> paycheck has to come or else, you yeah. know, we're, we're going backwards. And then that's where you, you run into that spot where your word was perfect, cowardice. Mm-hmm. Cowardice on top of fear of loss, like fear of going backwards. And you end up in that situation, I, I feel like a lot of large American companies got into where there's really no spine in the yeah. middle. <laughs> no, yeah. You, yeah. It, it is a shame to, to watch it happen. It is sad to watch it happen. Uh, and interestingly, some of the most... I would say the largest companies that people have generally a disdain for, and I don't have to name names, but are really <laughs> learning how to manage we'll people better. Names. Yeah. You know, like they're, they're really putting a lot of time and, and I, I can't obviously speak to every team or manager in those companies, but the material coming out um, is really good. They, they really are trying to manage teams um, in a way that breaks from the old like 1940s traditional manufacturing legacy type management style, which is, um, I'm a manager, I'm a boss. And I, the reason why I am is that I can get 20 other men to stand at the assembly line, show up on time and do a good job and, and meet these numbers. And that's not what a leader is anymore. Yeah. Well, that's, you waited your turn, right? You worked in the factory 20 years and the guy above you died. Right. Now it's your job. That's right. <laughs> They're just, that's not what a leader is anymore. And, and with the, you know, the advent of the internet ideas and, people are more mobile. And so you can see that like, oh, this, what's going on at this company is toxic and immature. This company seems to have a different kind of uh, vibe going on there or, you know, a kinder leader or a more de- mature leader. Uh, whereas before, you, you know, you just were happy to have a job. And you, I mean, you knew going in, I'm going to grind for 40 years and I may get a watch, I may not. And I'm going, you know, that's what I'm going to do for my family. And that's not the, that's not the culture that we live in today, thankfully. Yeah, definitely not. I think you, you you hit the nail on the head there. There's definitely a, a greater emphasis on, you know, how to deal with people. And I'm wondering how much of that is leadership realizing that it needs to change or, well, maybe it's leadership realizing that it needs to change or it's maybe younger people coming into the workforce who don't respond at all to the old way of thinking. And so it had to change. Yeah. You know? I would imagine it's a little bit of both, right? There's there's probably some humble learners in the older generation uh, that see the benefit of that style of management. And there's probably some younger managers that are just by sheer pragmatism trying to do it differently because they got to maintain the, you know, this younger talent coming in. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So when you're, you know, talking to people about leadership or coaching people through a process, you know, what are some of the common, most common you know, complaints or issues or challenges that you see um, that maybe, you know, they themselves being too close to the problem or not seeing? Yeah. Lack of self-awareness is uh, the number one thing. And probably the way you're asking the question is, okay, what are they not aware of? Mm -hmm. Um, But it is lack of self-awareness in the sense that 
Um, it could be as um, an easy a thing as uh, their body language and and verbal cues come across as immature, and are like who coaches someone on that, right? Who tells someone, hey, you don't even mean it, but when you stand that way or sit that way, you come across disinterested or arrogant. Uh, or I had a conversation the other day with someone that uh, interrupted, and I just felt free to say, hey, I, I don't think you know you're doing this. Uh, they were appreciative uh, and asked me to, like, in, in the setting, I felt like it was appropriate. I wouldn't do that to normal, like in a normal, like, at the coffee shop. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, things like, little things like that that sometimes I think we grow up in and don't even aware, uh, we're not even aware that we do it can really hold you back. And then, of course, you can kick it up a notch and say, um, can a person lead a meeting well? Uh, can they can they communicate an idea clearly? Uh, those are things that people sometimes just aren't aware that they do that that keep them from getting the opportunities. What I've noticed watching people, it doesn't matter if you're employed or not employed. It doesn't matter what your degree is or not, right? I've watched people that are leaders in the way they think about things. They gravitate to like-minded people or to people that will adore them. That's what I've noticed. So I know, I know people that have many, many degrees and I would say are socially awkward and they hang out with similar people, okay? I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have many, many degrees. That's great, go for it. I'm just saying it's not the proof of anything. And then I've seen people that are by that standard undereducated but understand innately business and people and how to sit across the table and close a deal and sell themselves in a charming, winsome way. And those people sit across the room from, you know, $100 million executives, and they enjoy each other's company. So there is a, a innate ability to be able to sit in a room with the people that you need to win over, whether it's for a job or for persuasiveness in a boardroom. And I think that a lot of people don't know how to, like, change how they speak, how they carry themselves, um, how to project their ideas, um, and that affects who will listen to you. I mean, there's people that probably are do what you do and own a gym or, or care about the future of people's lives. I mean, you, you're wise in a lot of ways. And they might have the exact same interests as you, Jason, but you can probably tell pretty quickly, like, we're not on the same level. And I don't mean that arrogantly, like, just energy is different. And I think that happens in business. Mm -hmm. And people fool themselves into thinking it's all about performance. If I do this job really well and I get 110% to 100%, I'm going to be like that guy. Like, no, you might, but probably not. You don't, they don't even want you in the room. So I would say that self-awareness, learning how to be humble, learning how to communicate well, learning how to hold, be competent at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, so that brings uh, a great story to mind where you can look at academia mm -hmm. versus, say, the sales world, right? And in general, academics, uh, professors in particular, will have a disdain for the sales world or capitalism at large. Mm. And yet they are the type of people who will force you to buy their self-written textbook so that you can take their class with 300 other people. Right. 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 And so there's there's that. And then they wonder why their ideas and their sort of philosophies never make a huge splash in the world. And then there's salespeople or marketing people or communicators in general who are able to take an idea and communicate it to people and have them willingly give them money, you know, and be and, happy that they did. Right. And, and in my mind, this is the reason that there's disdain in academia for like the business world, because they, they have something 
uh, happening on the business side that they're unable to produce in academia. And it's the, it's that professor is not taking a look. He's not showing up. He's not understanding the awareness of the fact that he's not a good salesperson, not a good communicator. You know, the ideas need to be promoted. They have to be presented in a certain way Mm -hmm. in order for them to be digested and understood and all the rest of this, there has to be desire created in the prospect. Or you can just say, hey, take my class and you have to buy this book because I wrote it. Yeah. That's a very, very different scenario. And so like going back to that leadership piece, leading someone through understanding something and leading something, leading someone who's forced to participate in your little delusion <laughs> is two very, very different things, man. It is. It is. It's interesting. The academic metaphor, really, really interesting to me. They are selling something too. Uh, the the professors themselves may not even feel it, um, but they know it. And what they're selling is tuition to a, to a parent or a grandparent that is impressed with the pedigree um, of the school. Uh, rather than, I mean, the whole phrase, real life experience, right, should be a slap in the face to academics. The fact that real life experience is even a phrase, it, it exists because you can pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for an education and then not know how to run a business. You can be terrible at business and have an MBA uh, because it's academics. It's not real life. MBA may be one of the more practical pursuits. So I, I don't want to call you out if you had an MBA. That's great. I kind of wish I had one. But <laughs> but um, I hear, but a true story about academics um, that happened to me is um, about a year and a half ago, I was looking for a job and I found one at the college I have a degree from like literally my alma mater, um, in the department where I graduated. And I graduated from that department with high numbers. Like I literally got student of the year, the year I graduated. So I had, as far as academics go, I had a pedigree. I went on to get an advanced degree from another school. Uh, so I, I, sh- I thought, oh, I'll have a, like a fantastic like reputation at this school. And on top of that, that the, the title for the professorship was um, – digital content well in the meantime since I left there I had run like a globally impactful digital content company that literally showed like 11 pieces of content every second of 2017 like very like um well spread I'll put it that way (laughs) digitally very competent um in the private sector and I was talking to the hiring professor and he said Sean I'll just tell you they're not interested they want to see a like years and years of teaching, years and years of degrees, more degrees than you have. Uh, and, and he said, it, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just telling you, they're not looking for someone like you. And I was thinking, like, I know that if I were a student trying to learn digital content or whatever, you fill in the blank what you want to learn, I would love to have a professor that had done it, that had been successful, at least by the world standards, at a, at a higher level to give me practical insight as to what it looks like and how to succeed. And academics is not interested they're interested in what they're selling which is a pedigree to the parents and grandparents yeah um who are going to buy tuition yeah they're selling status you know? right we have more of these guys who have this degree than that guy over there right that school over there whatever. and i did not yeah. add to their pedigree <laughs> now i don't say that with like any bitterness because i've super I, I like you know i think god leads and i probably would have been unhappy at that job or at that place uh and in, in all truth, like I probably wouldn't have taken it if I got it now that I'm seeing how things kind of progressed. But it does tell us that like, man, there is a, there's a dysfunction there. Um, like we were using it as an example that, that 
the practicality of learning things and knowing how the real world works, to use that again, has value. Yes. And there is an academic, technical perspective that some leaders bring to their job that by default makes them communicate differently to their team and builds distrust over time. Yeah, 100%. I experienced the same thing. And uh, when I first moved out here, I got into web development, graphic design, and I built a little company. And I decided to look in. One of my friends was actually sent me a project that was too complex for him and said, hey, do this project for me and blah, blah, blah. And uh, we got to talking. He was like, oh, I'm working over at the at PVCC. I'm, I'm doing some adjunct faculty work. You know, I'm teaching some classes over there. And I'm like, well, what are you teaching? Because just told me you don't know that much right so, <laughs> uh, and so no uh, insult but what do you know yeah exactly and so we we got to talking and he's like yeah and they're looking for some people to do some graphic stuff over there too and uh, I was like oh really so I went over there and I talked to the people and I ended up doing uh, I ended up joining the school as an adjunct faculty which is basically like you're the low man on the totem pole faculty sure. <laughs> and uh, you're never going to get anywhere fat faculty kind right. of a thing which was fine because that wasn't why I was doing it but the, the interesting thing was I had gone to that school and had studied under uh, several people who were, you know, uh, highly pedigreed, if you will, and one of whom used to refer to his PhD as piled higher and deeper, you yeah. know, kind of a thing. And the education just really wasn't that good. He wasn't passionate about it. He, you know, he knew the sub subject matter, but it was just sort of, yeah, this is the same lesson plan we did yesterday and last year and the month before and yeah, just do the work kind of a thing. Yeah. So I went in as an adjunct and I was teaching graphics classes and I just told everyone on day one, I'm like, listen, this is going to be a very different class. Um, everyone in here has an A, right? You already have an A. All right. So just let's just go ahead and get that out of the way. If you do the work, you'll keep it, you know, and that's like we're going to do six projects. They're going to be real world. You can work together. You can cheat. You can collaborate, whatever you want to do. I don't care. Just get the work done, right? Produce the result. Yeah. And like jaws were dropping. Like they were like, well, you're going to let us work together on this? And no, no, no. I'm like, yeah, because that's how the real world works. And then at the end of it all, when they come in and they audit my class, you know, as a teacher, I got good marks, which was great. But what I was really excited about was the people who took my classes gave me good marks. Yeah. You know, they were, yeah. they, they felt like they learned a lot because we talked about business and we talked about real world applications mm -hmm. and they felt like they got something from it. And I thought that was a tremendous compliment, you know, because that was my sole goal. I didn't really care, you know, about, uh, you know, this number or grade or what, it doesn't really matter, yeah. you know, at the end of the day. That's really cool. I yeah. didn't know you did that. It was really cool. I, I'm, and I would, I'd have signed up for class if you were teaching it. Oh, you, you get to sit behind the mic on these podcasts <laughs> and then people don't ask you questions. <laughs> Can Maybe ask any question you want. You need to be a guest sometime. <laughs> sure. Happy to do that. Happy to do that. Yeah. How long ago was that? That was, whoa, back in 2005-ish probably. Mm. Four, five, six, somewhere around in there. I did it for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. That's Great. really neat. It was cool. It was I, loved, I loved the um, freedom that gives a student. Mm -hmm. I had a philosophy professor say, I don't care about this class so much. Uh, my preference would be that you all drop it and then just come back and let's just have the conversation for the semester. He goes, but I know that you, you won't do that. So I guess we have to do it this way. I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's so true though, right? Like mm -hmm. there's freedom in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, it, it removes all of the expectation and BS associated with the status of a grade. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was really cool. For sure. For sure. So what is, um, like from your perspective, yeah, you've 
been in systems and you've built yeah. them as an entrepreneur. Sure. So I'm switching the gear. I want to ask oh, you a question. Like, what out. do you think are like the biggest flaws of what that someone probably has to overcome if they're a leader? In a vacuum, you've got to guess and say, hey, I think these are probably things leaders need to work on or aspiring leaders. What would you say? I can speak from two experiences. Uh, my experience personally, but then what I saw my uncle go through mm-hmm. as the leader of a large company. Um, or a, a large private company. I mean, we were doing like six to eight million a month, and this was back in 1999. So, wow. so it was a, it was a decent sized company, you mm-hmm. know, um, not huge by today's standards at all. But anyway, I saw him experience uh, issues with trusting other people because people would come to him with problems, questions, concerns. And he didn't know if they were legitimate. And he ended up saying yes to a lot of people he probably should have said no to because he felt it was his obligation to his people to make sure they were taken care of. Mm -hmm. And he was, I think his heart was in the right place. But once people knew that they could take advantage of him, then they took advantage of him. And he was one of those people who was not good with people. And I think there was a part of him that wanted to be accepted more than discerning and so rather than be discerning and make good decisions in a lot of situations he would just give people anything they asked for and then ultimately pay the price like i remember there was one time like toward the end of that business being sold someone's uh, father or uncle or something had passed away and this is a guy out in california and I walked into my uncle's office and he was on speakerphone with him and the guy was asking him for money to pay for the funeral and uh, my uncle gave it to him. Ended up sending him like eight grand, you know, for, for funeral expenses and mm-hmm. stuff like this. You know, of course, you know, he's always promised, oh, I'll pay you back kind of a thing, but never did. It was one of those situations. So I've seen people with means who are in a leadership position, either social capital, and this, this can happen with social capital as well, like social capital or capital capital, where you, you disperse it incorrectly or inefficiently. I think that's a real challenge because everybody wants to be helpful. Yeah. And sometimes our help ends up hurting. Yeah. So I think that's one of the challenges as an outsider looking in my younger days that made an impression upon me. Right. Personally, I've experienced the social capital piece in that I have invested time in people that I really shouldn't have invested time in because I didn't vet them properly. And as a leader, I felt like, And again, this is in the context of an organization. So as a leader, I felt like I had made a good decision. But when I look back at the pros and cons, if I had to list them out, there would be more cons telling me not to invest in that person than pros. Mm -hmm. And rather than trust the facts, I would just go with my gut sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I would end up making a bad decision. I've made a bad decision trusting people a few times in, in that vein. Um, and then more, more recently, I would say the biggest challenge is staying true to what I want to create because a lot of times people can't see your vision, no matter how you articulate it, no matter how often you articulate it, they, they cannot see the vision or either you haven't presented it in a way that's accessible to them. And therefore there's little buy-in. So I think a big challenge when you have a big idea is first selling yourself and understanding how it needs to be communicated and then really not attaching yourself to people who don't buy into it 
because that's going to be a recipe for stagnation. It's going to be a recipe for being held back. People who really are just there for maybe a paycheck or maybe their own, you know, selfish reasons, whatever the thing is. So that personally has probably been one of the greatest challenges. And I've had to learn how to define leadership. Um, so to answer a question you didn't ask, like for me, the leadership piece is always confusing because no one can really define it. And one of my mentors, I was reading his book, and he talks about leadership as being leadership of self. And I didn't really understood, understand what he meant by that the first couple times I read through it. Because his point was, to be a leader, you first have to lead you. Okay, I can buy into that. And that, that means that you may not have any followers and then I was like, well, I'm not necessarily buying that because everybody tells me that if you're going to be a leader, you have to have people following you, right? Like mm -hmm. that's the whole purpose of being a leader. But the definition continues and it's like, well, no, what it actually is, is being a leader of self is leadership and having a group of people following you or, or three people following you or 300 people following you is the result of you leading yourself. But I think what people do is they seek the following first and then use the following to define themselves as a leader rather than defining themselves as a leader first and allowing the following to build over time mm -hmm. because we have that impatience around it. And so I can speak as a content creator, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur. It's very difficult when you feel like you're doing good work and you see one follower come in or two followers come in, you know, and you don't see like this flood of people rushing to, to your door to consume your information. Yeah. I think that's a real challenge. Um, and it's a trap because if you allow yourself to be guided by the whims of other people, then you lose yourself and you ultimately lose your ability to lead. That's good. Yeah. I, uh, wanted to ask when I heard you say about investing in people, like, do you feel like you learned like from, I mean, obviously you learn, but like as you begin to like say, I shouldn't have invested in those people. Are there things looking back now, like red flags that you didn't pick up on, or that at least now you would wait differently when it comes? Like, I'm, I'm thinking yeah. like hiring people, and that may not be yes. the context you're thinking about, but sure. I'm curious, like do you, learning how to hire people is, I mean, that's the skill of learning who to invest in, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, like, do you, do you feel like you could eyeball it the next time? Like, oh, here's the lesson I learned. And so that moving forward, I know how to be better. Yeah. So, I mean, the definition of learning is that you change your behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So I think my behavior would definitely be different. So I learned something. Now, whether I learned enough <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> remains to be seen. But what I can say with absolute certainty is that in those situations where leadership is required or being a leader is required, I have, I have definitely chosen to be more discerning. And I look at the red flags as they show up as red flags. Whereas in the past, I would look at them as, eh, well, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can work around that. Yeah, I can it. it's not mm -hmm. a big deal kind of a thing, right? But it is. Like if a red flag shows up early in a leadership relationship, it's a red, it's going to be a bigger red flag later. When And in my way of being, like I've always just been really cool and laid back with people. I don't necessarily like to be in your face about stuff. I'm passionate about the things I believe, but if you believe them, great. If you don't believe them, I'm totally fine with that. But in the context of building a vision, that's not acceptable, right? And so having the ability to turn that on and off has been something that I've been working to develop even later in life, right? Still developing it to this day. And so I would say to anyone who wants to 
grow or build an organization, if red flags do appear, you have to take them seriously. Um, a better way of saying it was probably a friend of mine. We were talking about investing one time and he's like, listen, if, if you want to invest and I extrapolate this out into people, if you want to invest into people or partners, right. In mm -hmm. a business, a spouse, a friendship, whatever the thing is, you should always look for a reason not to do the deal. And then if you can't find one, you do the deal. But if you look for a reason not to do the deal and you see even the slightest reason, then you don't do the deal. And I think that's really good advice because at the end of the day, those little things are going to be magnified um, because you got to realize like at the earliest part of a relationship or the earliest part of an that's as easy as it's going to be. <laughs> it only gets more difficult from there. You know, it only gets more complex from there. It only gets, you know, there's only more at stake from there. Right. And so if those things are showing up and appearing, man, you have to take them seriously. And me being the idiot that I was in those moments, I was just like, ah, you know, well, you know, I'm cool. He's cool. We can, you know, we can, we can get through this, but no, that's not how it works. And I think avoiding that just builds resentment, you know, yeah. and then all leadership is lost. It and reminds it, me of the Michael Scott dilemma, right? Mm. I mean, and, and if you were putting the two, you talked about, um, social, uh, capital, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Scott on the office, right? He want that's all he wanted was social capital, right? And when that's all you want, uh, then you you operate um, at a different tension than someone that only cares about like performance, which I would say is the more traditional management style. Trying to find that balance really is the the key, I think, for like organizational leadership. Hundred percent. Um, and I can tell you, like my. I know where I am on that scale when I'm unhealthy. I'm definitely more the Michael Scott guy, right? I, I want people to like me. I want to feel affirmed. And then that creates problems. When I get what I want, I've created a problem on how to then get performance from those relationships. If they're high performers, great. I get it anyway. But if they're not and I have to hold people accountable, um, ultimately, then I struggle in the past to switch the gear so you have to find that balance so if you're on the other end of the scale right and you're not operating with social capital but political capital if you want to use it that way like the power that you have um you're gonna have a hard time motivating people as well um, just generally to get 100%. to get a job done yeah so in the example you used earlier you were talking about your buddy who has this uh new boss at amazon or what mm -hmm. have you and you used you said that he likes her oh he really likes her or they or the team really likes her and I feel like there's there's a, there's probably a nuance there that we could explore. So, you know, being liked as a leader, how important is that versus being effective versus, you know, being any other trait that gets you to the end result, right? Like liking someone or maybe respect, maybe what he meant to communicate was we respect her, mm -hmm. you know? And that may have been what he said. I mean, I'm... I'm remembering the conversation. Sure. But, but no, I think you're making a good point. If all we want, I mean, definitely on that continuum, wanting to be liked is on there and then wanting to be respected and, and you know, we move it back. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that definitely be worth unpacking. I think it, I think the, there's got to be a balance, you know, and you can say, uh, I mean, clearly someone that wants to be liked, the Michael Scott. Okay. With a little bit more social awareness, right? That is the skill set that makes good, Salespeople, they're they're the cues of like who likes me and who doesn't. The if the, is this conversation going well or is it going poorly? Like just being able to realize that and operate in that kind of environment rather than see this title on my desk. Yes. This co this conversation's going just fine. Like approaching negotiation from the point of like I know that I win because I have this role. Yes. So this is what we're going to do. 
um, that is effective too in some scenarios. Uh, and over time, like, I think you've got to figure out like how to, how to mitigate those extremes. Um, one, uh, I read, a, well, Jocko Willick has written leadership books and, and he talks about even in scenarios as extreme as the battlefield, leaders have to be able to listen and get way in and buy in. Now, obviously not on the battlefield mid-combat, right. but in order to build that team. And the way that he discusses it, um, there's I mean, the way I mean, he does anyway. I can't say about every military leader, but the way he discusses it, I think with a really healthy balance that probably even in organizations where lives are not on the line every day, uh, it's a really good balance. So for me, I like to try to work toward a balanced approach to that and, and help other people to do it while at the same time knowing what my weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tend toward um, power plays. I'm going to tend toward uh, relational affirmation and confidence, which could make me weak on accountability. Yes. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. And you know, it's one of his books was the dichotomy of leadership, right? So you're on that spectrum somewhere and yeah. you know, and, and you're bouncing back between those two things. You asked me about leadership earlier and one of the things that came to mind when you mentioned uh, Jocko's philosophy is this idea of uh, decentralized command. You know, so he talks about in the SEAL teams how, you know, most of the SEALs are highly educated people. And that goes against everything that you would think would be true in like a, you know, like a frontline grunt. You know, this is a guy's just going to take orders and then take bullets if, if necessary. But in the SEAL teams, it's a more of a you know, let's, uh, let's everyone have input on what the best way to solve this problem is. Right. And so when I run, you know, the way I run, uh, my trainers at the gym is I use the same term. I'm like, Hey, we're going to have a decentralized command. If I'm not here, I expect you to make a decision and we'll figure out the consequences later, whether it was good or bad or otherwise, but I don't want you to be beholden to me because I trust that I made a good hire in you. And I trust in your ability to discern you know, right from wrong. And then if I see something, you know, I'm going to say something and we can have a discussion in, you know, really honest terms about what that looks like. And maybe I'm wrong and you can educate me, but maybe you're wrong and I can educate you. And so I try to lead from that place. And, uh, I think it's definitely more effective than the do it, do it because I said so, or do it because my title is X. Right. But by the same token, it opens you up to more vulnerabilities you know, there's, there's, there are more chain links where something could, could go wrong. So I think having that trust, that ability to really see or surround yourself with people that, you know, you know, have a good head on their shoulders is key in those moments. For sure. You, it's, it's the ability to decide whether or not you want to give your team a chance to succeed a level higher than what you might even could orchestrate um, versus operating from a place of fear and control to where you can, you feel like you can guarantee success, but you're eliminating variables around the periphery of the team that create that, that minimize their, I would, I would say their total performance. Yes. Does that make like, make sense? In other words, a bad leader will say, I'm not going to give you these creative options because in their mind, they can't control it. They'll express it like that's a bad idea. Um, that won't go well. I've done this for 20 years, but, <laughs> but a lot of times that's code for, I don't feel like I can control that. Right. Uh, and so they're willing to, to cut the potential for gain from the possible performance of the team in order to satisfy, um, their own lack of ability to, to see 
uh, a different way. They're operating from fear of their own, of the unknown. And so learning to say, to balance accountability with how do I give this team room to grow, maybe even beyond what I understand. Yeah. It's, I think that's a really good <clears throat> leadership tactic. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, what I took from what you said was when you're eliminating those uh, variables for potential downfalls, you're also eliminating those variables for potential growth. And, you know, it's, it's like nowadays when you have kids who are basically sheltered from everything and then they go into the world and they're not prepared for anything. Mm. You know, uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about this in, in his book, uh, Coddling of the American Mind, you know, how he has his kids doing things by themselves at very young ages, which is what we used to do when I was growing up. Yeah. You know, I was cutting grass with a push mower, you know, by myself when I was six years old. Heck yeah, you, know, you t- are. Today, that would be child abuse, you know. <laughs> what if you, it fell on him? You know, right. what if he cuts his foot off? You know, there's all these what ifs yeah. <laughs> that are, you know, that, you know, are very, very, very small chance of happening, right? Mm-hmm. But um, that's that's the same sort of a thing. You yeah. know, you, you eliminate those abilities for growth and you infantilize people. And the next thing you know, you end up with basically a group of toddlers who can't function without you saying, hey, it's time to change your diaper. Yeah. And I think they're, you know, if I'm being honest, I think they're leaders. That's what they want. Oh, yeah. Um, I think they want the toddlers. You know, I think they want the toddlers at a certain level of maturity um, or lack of maturity to run through, and push them, push them through the system um, rather than grow people. You know, like uh, some of the best leaders I know, and I'm sure you've heard them say it, is uh, they'd be happy to develop people that could do their own job better than they can do it. And they'll move on to the next thing uh, as opposed to having minions that you can control. Uh, the parenting thing is great. I, you know, you can tell uh, from the South, you know that about me. And we just raise kids differently, you know, just do. And so, like, even now in our little suburban life here, uh, we get texts to let us know that our kids are climbing trees. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Like, well, I just want you to know they're climbing trees and there's, like, rocks down underneath them. I'm like, yep, you're right. There sure are rocks down there. But it's this whole like helicoptering over our children, yeah. and my kids are not that young. Like my youngest is eight, and he's a fantastic climber. But like I've got ten year old, twelve year old, like plenty old enough to be climbing a tree. But it is that mindset that we can eliminate all risk, and yes. that that there's some sense of caring and nobility in doing that as a parent. And then I think as an organizational leader, it's because of fear. I really do. Yeah, and so I asked this question on Facebook a while back. I've asked it a couple times now, and I always get different answers. And this was the first time I asked it, I think was during the pandemic when everything was getting locked down and, you know, everyone was scared to look at their neighbor kind of a thing. And I just asked the question, you know, at, <clears throat> at what point does safety become danger? You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, if we put that in the context of leadership, that leader who wants to play it safe, you know, who is not developing the team, who is basically infantilizing their team, you know, who thinks he's creating job security you know, at what point does that safety for him become danger or hurt? For sure. Yeah, I think you got to decide, decide, like, what, safety from what? Right. Right, versus risks of what, mm-hmm. you know? Um, civilizations, like, uh, all right, the uh, Hunger Games, right? Mm-hmm. In one sense, they were fine, right? Their lives were miserable, right? And occasionally someone would get shot, but generally, odds are, they were safe, right? As physically safe. They had houses. They were te- the houses were terrible. They had food. The food wasn't any good. Um, they had no freedom to elect their future. Um, but in the, in the sense of safety, they had that. Um, that's, 
the way some people do it. It's like they, they, what they've done is they've given themselves or their children some version of safety by eliminating all of these other options. Mm. No one watches that Hunger Games and say, man, I really think they should go back to that other way. But it was more risky. Like the, 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 the end is more risky, right? By opening up, there's more freedom of thought. There's more potential outcomes. You're more open to like, like outside risks because you have to give people enough control to like disagree with you. Um, enough freedom of choice to disagree with you. That's what I, what I mean there. But at the same time, there's a morale around the freedom. So if you can build morale around freedom and positivity versus control, uh, so in like in your case, you 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 acknowledge you want people around you that uh, align with your vision, right? Yes. That's not about control. I imagine that's more about you you recognizing that they'll be more creative and motivated. Uh, alongside you if we have the same vision it's about efficacy yeah good leaders and so yeah land there that's a good place to land the plane good leaders wrongly believe i mean bad leaders wrongly believe that it is more effective to rule like president snow (laughs) have complete control don't you realize how generous i am Mm. believe in the um in in the generous uh tyrant right yes a benevolent dictator is the best way to rule and it's not like but a good leader will say no i believe in in people generally and in, in people's desire to come alongside this mission that i'm going to create for them they believe in their own ability to paint a a, a picture of a, a vision give a dream that's worth living for and, and letting the chips fall where they may I think that's where good leaders and bad leaders really separate themselves. Choosing to say, I'll rule with control or I'll rule with a clearly stated mission where I will be right there with you fighting alongside. Mm. So if you are in a leadership position in, in any organization, whatever that thing happens to be, I mean, you talked about, you know, good and bad, meaning effective or ineffective. And you talked about awareness and, you know, gaining that, you know, what is the first step that you need to take to acquire that awareness of how you're showing up and in such a way that you can show up, you know, better for yourself and for your people. Well, I mean, I'm biased. I like coaches, right? Cause I am one. Um, but I mean, honestly, like if I, if I were sitting across the coffee table from a guy that's five years or 10 years into a career and he asked me that question, like, how do I find out the things I'm doing that I don't know that I'm doing? Um, I would probably say, are you married? And if you're married, ask your wife, like literally, like, what do you do around the home? That's, annoying like give her give her the ability or give him the ability like your spouse like to answer that question freely do i interrupt a lot do i have weird eye contact do i only do it my way do i procrastinate am i detail oriented to the point that it's annoying do i over analyze situations do i under analyze it those are questions a spouse can answer really well then you can do a self-prompted 360 review uh, which i really think they're really good like trying to get people to give you feedback you can set them up on Survey Monkey or whatever the new brand is, I just they actually just went under new ownership like a month ago. Uh, executive coaches—that's what they're there for—to kind of like watch and observe and ask good questions and learn how you interact and see the world. But you don't have to do that if what you're trying to figure out is self-awareness. Give your friends the permission to give you that kind of feedback. Your spouse, a boss. A lot of times, your boss might have it and just doesn't want to bother with the complications of giving you that feedback and a lot of bosses honestly don't want to have that conversation because like it's not they're willing to 
sustain the risk or cost of you not changing. But when you say, I do want to change, I really do want to change. So even if it's not a performance issue, how can I be better? Like whether it's in a meeting, I don't, I don't know what you do, right? I don't know who, what your listeners do, but I would say whether it's in a meeting or day to day, how I interact before work, after work, do I do weird things on social media? Like literally get like you open the book as much as you want to open it. I think that's how you grow. Mm-hmm. Is giving someone permission to say something that might reveal a nugget of truth that otherwise they wouldn't say because they don't have to say it. That's hard. It's yeah. hard for a spouse to say that or a boss to say that. It felt weird for me to say to someone, I think you interrupted a little bit too much in that meeting earlier. I didn't have to say it. I could have said nothing. Guess, guess how much it would have hurt me to say nothing? Not at all. That's not my job. But I was really trying to help. And um, I, I, he said thank you. I don't know if he meant it. But I would say find someone that can have, you, have those conversations with you. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So that so there's an, there's an element of vulnerability that has to be present because, you know, you're probably not going to like everything you hear. <laughs> I mean, if you do, you probably did it wrong. Exactly. I mean, what have you learned? Someone's lying you, to you. Right. What have you, you know, when I, I talked to a guy the other day, he said he only gets positive feedback and he was saying that like a, like a complaint. Like I really want someone to give me negative feedback. It was in a particular like role. It wasn't like in his whole life. Sure. Uh, and I said, yeah, that's a, that's a, stagnant position to be in if you're wanting to grow in any role uh, whether that's a father or a you know a parent or a spouse or a professional uh, if you want to grow if you're not getting some constructive feedback you won't grow right so you sometimes you have to invite it i call you know people say managing up one way you have to manage up is tell your boss it's being pretty cool hey would you take a weekend to think about ways i can be better mm. I, I want it you can Tell it to me in a way that there's no like HR liability. I don't care. Like figure out a way to tell it to me. I really want to grow. Mm, I love it. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. So you know, this is obviously a subject that's near and dear to your heart. It's something that you've been studying for a while now. You know, I gave you a bit of my interpretation of what leadership was earlier, with the caveat that I've never really heard a good definition. Mm-hmm. So what's a good definition? Oh man, put me on the spot. <laughs> we could have had some show notes or something beforehand. <laughs> Uh, to think about that. Uh, I would say a good definition of leadership would probably go along the lines of uh, someone who, um, with humility and clarity, can rally a team around the vision. Mm. I mean, there's probably like more adjectives, you know, I'm thinking about, I really like joy and I really like, you know, strength and courage. And I'm, you you can pick your adjectives. uh, But we are shaped by our experiences. And in my experiences, the teams, the leaders that I align with the most, that I enjoy being around the most, um, are the ones that leverage humility and clarity mm-hmm. to, to build a vision. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you said that because, you know, a lot of times I think people do want to play the positive, you know, they want to play the positive aspect of everything. And then that we forget sometimes that a lot of our greatest leaders were assholes, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs, for example, has a, a wonderful reputation for being an ass yep. to his teams. And, you know, he's one of probably the greatest visionaries of the last decade. And so you have to wonder, you know, why was he able to push people so hard and yet still create such great results? Yeah. And this guy over here who's, you know, kind of going from the positive side all the time is not, you know, what is the difference Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I'd be curious to know what well, one the, of the, the science one of them doesn't is. understand computers like Steve Jobs does for <laughs> sure. Um, sure. But I, I no, there's a truth to that. I mean, you can't underestimate the power of genius. Right. I mean, there there are incredibly awful people that were geniuses and you can't deny that they benefited from their genius. And I would never 
undercut the power that if you have a boss that's a genius and sure. something, yeah. that's gonna like that has great value. Yes, uh, in an organization and figuring out how to <laughs> correctly respond to that and and manage that is is important. Uh, but assuming that I'm talking to someone that's asking me that question, I can't mm-hmm. give them genius. Right? No, no, no. They have it or they don't. What I can help them with, and what you can help them with, and what asking your friends around you to help you with can improve other things. So um, I can't, uh, you can't coach me into being LeBron James, mm. right? But you can make me a better basketball player. Uh, you can make LeBron James a better basketball player. Um, he may not even agree with that right now, but I'm assuming he would agree with it. <laughs> um, so I would say, like, there are ways that even asshole bosses can be better. Sure. Um, and that's probably not leaning into that uh, that particular part of their character. They just happen to be that and also a genius. Yeah. Does when, that make sense? Yeah. When you think back over your experience with people who've been in leadership positions with you or over you or beside you, what would be maybe the top one or two traits that you remember that really stand out in your mind about them? The good leaders, right? Yeah. yeah. Preferably. Uh, yeah, the good leaders. Uh, organizational clarity, uh, one. And what I mean by that is they understood the impact of their decision across an organization. Uh, two, they were enjoyable to be around. Uh, now, that might be my personality more than generally, but I, I, I think that leaders that are enjoyable to be around, um, they can laugh, they can have people laughing around them, they attract really good people to them. Uh, again, like you, you're going to use, like not you're not going to use, but you refer to someone like Steve Jobs, and I would say his genius was unparalleled in the thing that he did, right? So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking. I'm trying to talk about. Yeah, he elite. had a, he had a group of believers for sure. For behind. sure. Yeah. And no, but I think like organizational clarity, like just clearly likable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, affirming, and then uh, confident. There's a co- being able to mix kindness and confidence. Really, the that's the sweet spot. Mm. Immature leaders think that they can get high enough up the organizational chart to where they can ditch the kindness. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, it, whereas good leaders, they know how to, like, get the job done and hold you accountable and live in kindness. I, that sounds like something, you know, you'd write in a kid's book. But, man, when I see it happen, I'm telling you, like, that is a huge deal. You know, it's a huge deal when someone can be kind mm-hmm. um, and humble and then lead with confidence in the same conversation, in the same moment. Those are not mutually exclusive in the same moment. Yeah, for sure. When I think about it uh, from my personal experience, I remember some of the greatest leaders being the most gruff, you know, and they were that way on the surface, but there was something about their delivery that you knew that wasn't all of it, you know, Mm -hmm. that you knew that underneath it, they really cared. You know, I I remember I had a seventh grade, eighth grade English teacher, Miss Hutto, and she was not an attractive lady. And 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 I'm I mean that from the standpoint of she always had this scowl on her face, mm-hmm. right? And I remember sitting in the back of her class with a buddy of mine, just cutting up, you know. And she, she's like, "Boys," you know. She threw us out in the hall, and so we we're out standing in the hall waiting, waiting for our punishment, you know. Yeah. And because she had this reputation of being really mean, and she came out in the hall, and she was like, "Listen, 
I can't have you guys doing what you're doing in the back of the class. You know, I'm trying to get the, through this lesson plan, blah, blah, blah. And the reality of it is, is you boys are going to have to shut up or leave, you know, and I would, I would prefer that we all get along, you know, so here's what we're going to do. I have no punishment for you guys. I just expect you to respect me when we go back in the room. And the, even though she was known for being really harsh, she was delivering it in a way that, that she gave us this idea that she cared that we were there, you know? And I, th I think a lot of times that comes from this just magical authenticity that some people have. They have this ability to communicate who they really are through any type of word or deed that they put forth. It's like, this is what I really care about. I really care about, you know, getting, getting through this information or I care about this topic or I care about this enterprise or this business. And you know what? Sometimes I'm going to show up and I'm going to throw a temper tantrum. And sometimes I'm going to show up and I'm going to be happy as a clam. But through it all, you know, they somehow convey that you matter, you need to be there, and the mission is important. That's really good. I was literally thinking while you're talking about like how you said that is like a good leader, the gruff ones, and I have seen gruff leaders that were good um, in their gruffness gained my respect more, and the leaders that were that lost my respect for their gruffness were probably not even as gruff. But there was it was the, the context was was there an authenticity? Was there trust? Was there belief in their team? Mm -hmm. And when you're gruff and don't have those things, then you just seem, you know like a bad person who's desperate to hold on to a title mm -hmm. or ill-equipped to manage people. Whereas someone who's like really driven by a clear vision and cares for the team um, will get away with being gruff mm -hmm. and sometimes serve them well. Maybe that's another way of saying it. Maybe a word described that would be courage. Mm -hmm. um, so I am, I have to work for that kind of courage. Look, the courage that looks like, hey, I think we could be better here. I think you could be better at this. That's not hard for some leaders, right? If it's really easy for you, then people probably don't like you. <laughs> uh, it's too hard for me. I have to work at that. Um, but what I found is um, when I get there, it's really, it's really useful mm -hmm. for those people. And so for leaders that can say, hey, how can we be better? We didn't do this well. Come across, across gruff in those conversations. We got to do this faster, do this better. Um, I don't like that we failed. Um, and still can do that in a way where the team knows, hey, he cares about us. Yeah, she she loves this team. Like whatever that that is, mm -hmm. uh, that's a really that's a good leader. And I would maybe that's courage. Courage looks like being willing to hold the team accountable. Courage and kindness. Maybe that's that's a good way to put it together. There. I love it, man. It's cool because it's like uh, you know, in those moments where that gruffness or that that reality hits you, you are courageous in the fact that you're not seeking approval. I think that's the hardest thing for human beings. It's something that I struggle with when I confront people, you know, is a lot of times in the back of my mind, I'm coming from what I want. Like I, I want to be approved of in this conversation. I want to do it in a way that it doesn't upset anyone. But the reality is that's self-serving, not outward focused, It's selfish, not unselfish. Yeah. And I think that comes across sometimes. It's one of those skills that I definitely need a lot of work in. Mm. Uh, it's a lot, maybe a way to think about it, it's like parenting. No one thinks they're a bad parent when they get on their kids for running out on the road, mm -hmm. right? Or when they get on their kids for lying. Uh, certainly you can get onto your kids in a bad way or an angry way or in a harsh way. Um, but you're doing, you're building a human being, right? I had a hard conversation with my son two days ago. Uh, 
he we have we just got a dog. Dog's basically potty trained. And the dog took a dump in his room, and he didn't do anything about it. Didn't tell anybody. Just saw it happen and walked out. And we found out like hours later. Crap still in the room, and he's just like <laughs> acting at least indifferent to the fact that like this poop was there. He was probably um, timing it to see when it turns white. Yeah, um, and so I mean, yeah, I was upset. I was disappointed, but like. What I was thinking about during those conversations with my son was, I'm building a man here. I'm building a man. This is not about me making sure poop doesn't stay on my floor too long. That is not what I'm doing. That is real life. I don't want poop to be on my floor. But the bigger picture is I'm building a man. I'm doing him a service. I'm helping him grow up in a world that does not tolerate us leaving poop on floors, right? And so if I can think, even while I instruct, even while I'm disappointed, even like I was disappointed in him, but I can think like, hey, I, this isn't just about poop. This isn't just about me having a clean house. It's also about I'm building people. Um, that changes the way I speak. I don't always get that right as a parent. I don't want to pretend like I have it all together there. But the same should be true in organizations. You're building people. You're, you are building or tearing down morale. Um, there's a very real cost to the conversations that you have um, for team culture and organizational morale. And so I think that when we think about, like, how do we have this conversation rather than do I have the right title to have this conversation, that will really help how Mm -hmm. you have it. And a good leader will get that right more times than not. And it will still be gruff, but everyone in the room will know, doing it for the organization, we're building people here. I'm better for having heard it. It's bigger than us. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, man. That That was fire. Well said. We should stop then. Yeah, I say something for stupid. Sure, for sure. Yeah, I know I got to get you out of here. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. So uh, obviously we talked a little bit about what it is that you're doing, the coaching, uh, the leadership piece and all of that sort of thing. So if you would let people know how they can reach out if they're interested in learning more about uh, working with you. Oh, yeah. So doing a few things, but the easiest way to get a hold of me is you can check out the website at wootrain.com, W-O-O-T-R-A-I-N.com. Uh, and I don't know where your audience is located mostly, but I'm in North Phoenix. And I'm also doing marketing with a fairway. So I'm helping build uh, a friend of mine's loan business by like going out and trying to market it and grow relationships. Um, it's definitely a different look for me, but man, I'm really enjoying that too. That's cool. Uh, but uh, he's been good to say, Hey, keep doing what you're doing. Mm. And so I love the, I love the consulting coaching side of things. Uh, it's been, it's been a blessing to be able to do it. So yeah, if someone's interested, wootrain.com. Name's Sean Hare. I'm, if you look it up, I'm out there. Awesome, man. Awesome. I appreciate you being on today, man. I look forward to the next one already. We always have a great conversation. It's a blast. Hopefully, uh, you know, we can get in front of the mics more times than in front of the coffee table. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely looking, to the, looking forward to the next one, guys. So if you're out there listening and you want to talk to Sean about some business consulting, leadership stuff, be sure and reach out. The guy is fantastic, an amazing human being, and you will not be disappointed. So until then... On behalf of Sean and myself, we'll see you in the next episode. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.